everybody. Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. It's good to be back with you again today. Today, I mostly wanted to talk about some theories and thoughts I've been having about the economic markets and where I think this is all going uh, financially and, and how I think the, the world will react to it and, you know, just basically some theories about that kind of stuff. I do think it applies to the end times a little bit, which I'll talk about uh, at some point. But before I get to that, I wanted to mention a a video that I put up on a new YouTube channel called Media Missionaries on YouTube. And it was a, an edit of Billy Graham's sermons. It's only two minutes and 20 seconds long. It was designed to be shared on social media, but it's you know heavily edited all kinds of graphics and, and words and stuff and music. And I think it's a just a great thing to send to people who may be unsaved. Uh, but I really would like to keep doing that. Uh, I kind of got held up in permissions for a long time. It's a long story, so I just sort of threw it on YouTube a few days ago. But it does look like um, uh, um, the algorithm picked it up, and it looks like it's going to be doing pretty good if the trend continues. But anyway, you can, if you're uh, listening to this on a phone or a podcatcher, usually the first link, if you go to the show notes, will be to that. It's a new channel, and there are other people called Media Missionaries, so I doubt you'll be able to find it if you type it into YouTube right now. You could probably type Media Missionaries and Billy Graham into YouTube and find the channel. But in any case, the reason I'm mentioning that is that it is a dream of mine to be able to do this kind of video editing like as a, a full-time kind of thing and to hire people to do it and stuff. But the bottleneck in that whole thing is finding the content, finding those sermons that explain the gospel or, or, or whatever in just a powerful way. Of course, they can be hour-long sermons that we could edit down into two minutes or whatever. But the, the hard part is how can anybody listen to enough sermons to find the just cream of the crop, the best of the best messages out there from the best preachers or teachers or whatever. So I mentioned that because if you have one of those, if you know of a great sermon that uh, you've heard before, would you send it to me? Maybe that would inspire me to continue to do this. So I am really in, in need for great sermons, especially as it relates to the gospel, uh, evangelism kind of things in terms of, you know, explaining the gospel message, basically. But it doesn't necessarily have to be. If it's a great sermon, it's a great sermon. Either way, send it to me. My email address is chriswhite79 at protonmail.com. That is chriswhite79 at protonmail.com. All right, so I wanted to start off by talking about macroeconomics. This is a subject that I've been interested in for the past uh, two years or so. I've watched a lot of videos and, and listened to a lot of podcasts. It's a subject I really do, um, I really am interested in. But it's funny because I, I've never really quite understood it. I've looked uh, at macroeconomics a lot like I look at people that know about radio waves and stuff. You know, I think that's like a separate kind of uh, uh, expertise that's almost like unattainable. Uh, and it's funny but that I'm so interested in it, but it, that I never really, and still don't quite understand exactly what's going on with it. But I know enough to, I think, talk fairly reasonably about what's happening as it is. And I'll, I'll refrain right now from going into why I think that the central banks in general you know, are a bad idea and that they were set up essentially by the owners of the banks who are, you know, people and families that go back you know, probably since the beginning of, of civilization, almost in some cases, but uh, to, to steal the wealth of the world, it's a bad plan, but that's the plan that we got. And a lot of the questions uh, surrounding this latest printing of money, because it's not just America that printed a lot of money after the pandemic. It was the whole world. The whole world has central bank 
that did essentially the same thing that we did. If you, uh, you've probably seen on Twitter and stuff, these just massive riots every day in these countries, you know, it's a new country every day and it's just a billion people in the streets. And it's for reasons like, you know, it's basically the same thing. It's inflation. It's people mad at their countries for printing that money and inflating that money. And so, uh, uh, the questions people ask are, well, what's going to happen? I mean, because the reason that America feels somewhat protected from a lot of that stuff is because we have the world reserve currency, the dollar that used to be pegged to gold after World War II. It was a long story with Bretton Woods or whatever, but that sort of got uh, thrown out the window with uh, uh, Nixon. Uh, but then it got sort of, K Kissinger sort of saved the whole thing by setting up with the petrodollar which um, was a system with us in Saudi Arabia where we promised to protect Saudi uh, Arabia's kingdom uh, militarily in exchange for OPEC uh, only selling oil in dollars, which became essentially a proxy for the petrodollar is the world reserve currency as it in its current form. Anyway, I'll come back to that kind of stuff first. But the question a lot of people ask, uh, having printed all this money, where do we go? Do we go into inflation, hyperinflation, or do we go into deflation? And I won't go into all what that means, but something clicked recently that helped me understand that the question is irrelevant. Um, so just a quick, uh, so brief thing here. The Federal Reserve is in, its job is to fight inflation. The way that the Federal Reserve is supposed to fight inflation is they have the power to constrain credit markets, So, which is when they say they're going to raise interest rates. So if inflation, you know, which they think happens because of whatever, Putin or whatever, but it's a, a usually a monetary reason, namely you print too much money, you've got an inflation of the monetary supply. They fight that uh, by raising interest rates, which limits the amount of debt that people can get. If you get a higher interest rate on mortgages out there, you're not likely to go get a mortgage. And so therefore they are destroying the demand for credit because they've made it more expensive. Now, what that does is when you destroy the demand is it creates economic recession. It creates people losing jobs and stuff like that because if there's not enough if there's not enough loans to give out to businesses and stuff because the loans are too expensive, then people are gonna, you know, maybe not buy that uh eighteen wheeler that they were gonna buy on credit to go do their thing or whatever, or the company might not invest in this thing and therefore less jobs are created, therefore economic recession happens. So the Federal Reserve to fight inflation creates a recession. That's not uh, an accident. That's what you're supposed to do. Well, we got inflation. Let's cause a recession, therefore destroying the demand, which will eventually uh, bring down inflation because the prices will normalize. And that is what the world expects. The central banks like the Federal Reserve and other central banks, their entire mission, the reason for their existence is for this moment to fight inflation. And everybody believes that's what they will do. They also believe they have the power to do that. If the world at any time believed that the Federal Reserve was either unwilling or unable to fight inflation, there would be a really big problem. So the Federal Reserve always must posture itself as, oh, well, you're, we're gonna fight that inflation. And they have been 
pulling every trick in the book that's rhetoric based. You know, at first they denied it. Then they said, you know, got, they got real tough and we're going to really think about that. But at least into this point and probably for the future, they can't raise the rates too much for reasons we'll talk about. But even if they could raise the rates for raise rates high enough and for long enough to fight this inflation, which may be, you know, a huge amount that they would need to raise the actual rates and they would need to keep it there for years. They're therefore creating a long-term economic depression. What, what I mean, that's kind of the, the hole that we're in the, 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 the corresponding fall, the recession is related to how high the, the highs were in the bubble. And our bubble right now is unprecedented big. So in order to fix that, we would need to go into severe, probably worse than anybody's ever seen as far as it's alive today, uh, a recession slash depression. Now, my question to you is, does that seem something like something that any politician, whether Republican or, or Democrat, would ever do? The story in the Reagan administration, there was a, a guy at the Federal Reserve named uh, Paul Volcker, who he, you know, uh, conservatives lionize him because he did do that. He did the hard thing and raised the rates and sent the uh, a world into kind of a recession that was pretty prolonged, uh, but it did fight the inflation. It, it's considered to be a success. And I would say that this time is so much different because the levels of debt are so much higher. The entire world runs on debt. Every business runs on debt. You know, if you take a loaf of bread, every aspect of that had major debt. The farmers are have debt to get the seeds and get their million dollar combines and the trucker has debt and the factories have debt and the everybody down the line has major major debt, which is not the same as the 80s. So for that reason alone, uh, creating that limit to the uh, uh, credit market would destroy much, much more than it would in previous times. In addition to my point I'm trying to make, which is politically, it's a non-starter. So what is the likely political outcome to runaway inflation in these times, knowing that they can't really raise the interest rates, even if they wanted to politically? I'm, I'm saying that they can't. They, they're powerless to do it without crashing the whole system. So what are they going to do? They're going to do what they always do, which is print more money. They're going to do, oh, wow, oh, my gosh, uh, inflation is so bad. You know what we're going to do for you guys? We're going to send you out some checks, you know, which is going to make the problem worse. It's going to make more inflation and more inflation, which will lead to a kind of hyperinflation. Anyway, the people ask, you know, are we going to go into deflation or are we going to go into recession? But the thing that clicked for me recently is that it doesn't that both of those paths end up exactly in the same place, which is major economic uh, uh, recession, uh, uh, the kind of stuff where now, you know, the only thing that matters is like people producing stuff and like think of the Great Depression kind of thing, because whether you let inf uh, inflation run rampant, then you end up in the same place, which is major economic uh, recession slash depression, as if you intentionally did that to cure inflation, you would get to the same place. So it doesn't really matter uh, which way you go. We are headed to a economic place that is unprecedented no matter what anybody does. And the thing is, all that is just the starting point. Now we can start piling on these other problems that we have which I think number one is going to be supply chain issues in general, but also 
um, shortages of food. I mean, during this kind of global economic recession that I'm talking about, you are would normally have food prices go up. But now, as we've been seeing with all, and I've talked about here, the different sort of attacks on the harvests and the farming in general is going to make the the actual supply of food less as well. So throw that into the mix and you've got a recipe for just complete unrest. So people are going to be mad at each other in the best case scenario and overthrow governments and stuff all the time all over the world, as you've already been seeing if you've been watching, but they are certainly not televising that. But you also have the intense polarization of people to throw in that fire as well. The literal hatred for half of, half of the this country for the other half. The two minutes of hate that we all get on our algorithms is intensifying as well. So how's that going to play into it? I, I would like to think it would uh, be okay, but I, I, I don't think that's where it's going. I think it's going to blood in the streets, especially if you throw that into it. And that's kind of where I want to go here. Not necessarily the blood in the streets, but what does that look like on the ground? And I had some thoughts about that recently that I think are important. I started reading a few articles about the Great Depression in certain areas. I started by looking at the Great Depression in Appalachia because I was interested of how that worked. Because in the Appalachian Mountains where I live, there's not a lot of farmland. You know, there's these houses on top of mountains and stuff like that. But not there's not a lot of like fields and plains and places for people to grow food. And that was indeed a problem. When you go into a depression like that and now the only thing that really matters is not do you have... A, a job at some computer company that nobody needs anymore. The question is, what do you have or, or what are you producing that other people need? So, you know, it's either farmers or, or bootleggers or, or something like that, that that is the economy in dire straits situations. And it was rough in uh, Appalachia because of that reason. There, there was, it was essentially an overpopulation problem during the Great Depression. And remember, the Great Depression was an economic problem in conjunction with um, a similar food shortage problem. The Dust Bowl uh, was, I think, a drought-related problem in the West that, that had knock-on effects or whatever. But in any case, that was a, a part of it. I looked at the same kind of thing, the Great Depression in other areas, and it was a similar story. But the thing that hit me was the similar story of communism. And, you know, communism didn't start in the Great Depression. You know, it's, it, didn't, it started with you know, the, the Marx and Lenin and all that stuff. But but it really started to take root in America during the Great Depression. And it was because of hunger. It was because of destitution. It was people that, that were living high before that in the Roaring Twenties now were forced to, you know, I mean, work or starve, basically. And a lot of what came out of that is the uh, America at that time was against communism, but not really. I mean, really, the the, the what they did, the, the 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 solution of the government at the time was to basically do a lot of very socialist type things. They it was the beginning of what sort of the modern socialist thing, but it wasn't communism. They were still opposed to communism and tried to do that kind of stuff in order to appease people away from communism. Hey, we can do we can give you stuff too. Don't worry, don't become communist. We'll we'll give you stuff and. The, the New Deal and all that stuff. It, it hit me that that is probably, so So if you've been following all this stuff, you know that uh, the, the public schools have been more, and certainly the colleges have been indoctrinating people into communism for a long time. A lot of the young people who are likely to 
because uh, all revolutions are fought by the young and dumb. And, um, and sometimes that's a good thing. In America, they were young and maybe they weren't too dumb, but they were certainly the young guys. I think they were like ridiculously young too. The founding fathers were like in their 20s and stuff. But, but it's a young man's game, revolutions. And anyway, so they, my point is that I think the indoctrination of the, the youth of this country and probably many countries around the world was never really meant to be activated until the economy collapses. And then when the economy collapses, you're going to have people, and I'm not saying that they're going to clamor for like Marxist, Leninist communism, but they're going to clamor, they're going to, they're going to be activated to whatever kind of socialism is being offered. And I look at the, whether it's the World Economic Forum or something like that, this kind of neo-feudalism that they're offering, because what they're offering isn't exactly exactly communism because if i i mean i know that there were elites in communism and like stalin was wealthy and i'm sure a lot of top uh chinese officials in the politburo are wealthy and stuff but they're probably but not like the what they're proposing at the world economic forum and that's kind of where i think i want to go with this i think what they're proposing is this sort of massive wealth gap that was the way that the world operated before the French Revolution, and which is basically kings and, and, and everybody else, kings and queens and, and royal people, and then the peasants, maybe the merchant class snuck in there a little bit later on, Roman period and that kind of stuff. But for the most part, one thing that made me think about this recently is uh, I've been... I put a TV in front of my treadmill, like a kind of eye level, and I will. They got these great things on YouTube, these 4K walking tour things where people with a gimbal and like a GoPro are walking around, you know, awesome cities and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm all over Europe these days, basically. But one of the things I notice, and it's, and by the way, let me just stop there because. I think it's the most interesting thing to watch because you, 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 your eyes dart around and you're soaking in all this information. It's like, I mean, you're just processing so much. Oh, that's what's for sale there. All oh, those pastries look nice. What does that sign say? Whatever. You're just look at these people and all the stuff. It's just, you're taking in so much more information. It's such a, uh, you really do feel like you've been there. I mean, the day is like, oh yeah. I mean, the, I've been to some fringe towns that are exactly, you know, like, I feel like I've totally been there. But my point here is that um, you see these old buildings that were just these monolith places where the kings and queens lived and just how far away that was from the peasants. I've been uh, recently reading a book about the uh, Middle Ages and it was a very similar situation. You had the, the lords and you had the serfs and they just didn't meet. There was no middle ground there. I, I don't want to say that it's the same people. Like I do think there are probably wealthy families that have been in power essentially more or less from you know ancient times and it would be really easy to be you know if you if you made that kind of money back in the day it would be very easy to continue to have that money and pass it down i think that the reason the french revolution was important and i think the french revolution as evil as it totally was because they hated god they were anti uh well the catholic church but they were anti-god in general but they did have this, they were drunk with the idea of liberty. They were drunk with the idea of this difference between the, the kings and everybody else. And the, the world at that time was totally ruled by kings and queens and everything else. And I don't think that they thought much of the French Revolution until, you know, what it was, many years later after the French Revolution had sort of morphed into something else. And Napoleon shows up 
And Napoleon was interesting because he was the first guy to say, you know what? I think everybody in the country should be uh, in the military. Before that, these kings and queens over, over you know, uh, in Europe and in other places, they had armies, but they were sort of volunteer knights and stuff. They, were, they could never command that many people. But when France, this little country said, hey, everybody is now a part of the military, they had these massive numbers and they were able to just roll over the kings and queens and everything. And it was somewhere around there, ultimately with World War II, I think that the kings and queens as we currently know them, they don't exist. I mean, we've got the, the Queen of England and I'm sure a few uh, others out there. Um, but those people didn't go away and their money didn't go away. And so I, I know I'm saying all this to say, I don't think it's the same people. It's the mindset of that's where the human heart really wants to be. If you have that kind of money, you know, money, money, then you want to be so much better than everybody else. And it is unacceptable. Like the, 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 fr the fruit of that place in your heart run amok is this great ruling over like a slave and master relationship. And what I think Klaus Schwab is proposing where you have corporations as stakeholders and then everybody else rents from them and has nothing and, and are happy, that is a you own nothing, but the corporations exist and the corporations have people and shareholders and stuff. So it sort of institutionalizes a true and completely separate. It's this massive, massive institutionalized separation of wealth. And um, I think what's happening right now is part of that. I should go on to say that another thing about the Great Depression that was uh, uh, significant is that the only way that we got out of it was through war. And, and war, I think, is the natural progression of what's coming, too. I think you could almost guarantee that a war is happening. And I would submit that, that uh, other countries in the world are positioning themselves, themselves for that right now. And that's where I want to take this. And the next aspect of this with the economic stuff is this uh, thing that's developing with the BRICS nations and stuff like that, because it's a big deal and you're not hearing very much about it. And the consequences for America are very intense because I think that, you know, the idea is that America goes through, let's say a recession and all this stuff. And we, yes, we, it costs us more to buy our food and stuff, but we're going to be fine. But that's because we have the world reserve currency. We no longer have to produce anything. We don't produce anything. Our GDP is essentially negative. Um, what we do is we print money. And because we have the world reserve currency, other countries and nations have to buy our dollars in order to pay their debts. So their debts are denominated in dollars. So there's a demand for U.S. treasuries and, and dollars. And also, I do, I do think that we're the the uh, the best of the currencies out there of the fiat currencies if you were rich in some other country you would want to own u.s treasuries or dollars as a hedge for your country's inflation so there's that too that's another benefit of having the world reserve currency so we're you know when when it all started back in Bretton woods after world war ii the reason that everybody said oh you can have the world reserve currency is because number one we had all the gold we, we, everybody sold us their gold to, to, to fund that war. So we had all this gold that we could base a currency off of. And then also, uh, we were like the, by far, the greatest producer of goods. We produced the best and the most goods of anybody else. Our GDP was astounding. 
and that has completely gone away. I mean, the, the GDP now, because we were able to live high in the hog and didn't actually have to produce anything to live wealthy. In fact, the whole world, they so sold us all their stuff in exchange for dollars. The point I'm trying to make here is that while the, th the thing that makes us feel secure in going through another recession or depression is that we'll be able to make it because the dollar is still the reserve currency. But if the dollar is not still the reserve currency, then we are uh, particularly vulnerable to some really wild times uh, because we are now in a situation where, as I say, we don't have the infrastructure to produce things, especially if this relates to oil. I could get into a whole thing about that because the country that we live in was based off oil flowing freely and oil is not going to flow freely in the future. I believe that they have sort of, I think I made that point last time. It's just, they, they, they're making it impossible for that to happen. And America is uniquely in trouble in that situation because we're much more spread apart. We all have cars. Our whole economy is based on oil being very easy to get and very cheap. So all of that to say, let's talk about this BRICS situation. And I think what I'm going to do is play a about a 10 minute clip from the Quoth the Raven podcast. Uh, he had a guest on, and Quoth the Raven is uh, Christopher Irons. He is a uh, researcher. He writes for like uh, Zero Hedge and some other places like that. He's sort of a uh, irreverent sort of economy guy. But uh, he had a guy named Andy Schechtman on, who I thought um, really made some points and brought a lot of things together with this problem with the BRICS nations. The question that I'm going to ask your, your viewers or your listeners out there is what makes the dollar the world reserve currency? Now, most people don't really know that answer. I ask people I talk to every day, do you know what makes the dollar the world reserve currency? Nobody ever knows. And look, it used to be pegged to gold. And at the end of World War II, the, the agreement was made between uh, the U.S. and the rest of the world that we said to, to the governments of the world, that, listen, you can always exchange your dollars. We'll be the world reserve currency. You can exchange them for gold at a fixed rate of $35 an ounce. And this is the reason we held most of the world's gold, because countries were holding uh, gold that earned no interest and cost money to store. They would give it to us. We would pay them 35 bucks an ounce for it. They would in turn buy our treasuries, earning a rate of return, and they could always exchange their dollars for gold. It was a good deal for them at a fixed rate. In an honorable world and, and in a fair market, it's a great deal. Well, towards the end of, night, towards the, end of the uh, Vietnam War, President de Gaulle from France called us on that, realizing that we had printed more dollars to fund the war and issued more treasuries to, to uh, expand our economy than we had gold backing it. And so he sent warships filled with dollars to New York Harbor demanding return of gold, and he got it bled half of the gold down nearly at the U.S. Treasury, and they closed the gold window. Nixon did in April of 19, August of 1971. And it was at that point the dollar was backed by nothing, fiat. But it was three years later that Henry Kissinger flew to Saudi Arabia and worked out an agreement. Uh, hey, we will uh, protect you. Let's call it a joint military cooperation agreement. We will protect you. We'll provide you munitions. And for that, OPEC will denominate oil globally in U.S. dollars. And that gave the, the, the dollar its world reserve status, once again, being backed by oil. Every country in the world needed to buy dollars, creating the synthetic demand for the dollars in order to buy oil. It gave it the name, the petrodollar. And it has been this way since 1973. 
Um, and, you know, look, the deal in essence was we're going to sell you uh, military equipment. We're going to defend the Saudi kingdom. And in return for that, you're going to denominate oil in U.S. dollars globally. And, and that that really is why the dollar is the world reserve currency. Correct. Okay? So, so let's look at a couple of things. And I'm going to make an I'm going to make a. Uh, a statement, let's call it a, a declaration as we go through this, that the Fed will not get on tough on inflation. Because remember, we said that the, the 9.1 inflation would actually be 13.6%. At that time, when 13.6% and higher inflation in 1980, Volcker raised the rates to almost 20%. He got tough on inflation. We go to two and a quarter percent. We ain't getting tough on anything. We will blow up this system. All right. There's my two premises dollars world reserve currency because we protect saudi arabia uh the fed who has blown up asset prices way too high uh will not get tough on inflation they don't want to be in history books so let's go down this little road and you tell me where you think uh you think if this is leading to the same place i do so uh some of these things we may have talked about briefly in previous interviews but in 2017 we saw something very interesting and that was the german bundesbank out of nowhere, made a very big deal on repatriating their gold from the New York Fed. It was all over the internet. Give us back our gold. Give us back our gold. Within a few weeks of that happening, the Bank of Austria, the Bank of Turkey, the Bank of Hungary, the Bank of Poland, the Dutch National Bank, the Bank of Austria, the um, uh, many of the other European banks, all of the Eastern European banks, they all said to the Bank of England, to the New York Fed, give us back our gold. We want our gold back. And this was really unusual in 17 because this is when cryptocurrencies were taken off and gold wasn't doing much of anything. The next year in 2018, those same banks, after being net sellers of gold for the previous decade prior, uh, accumulated more gold than they did in the 60 years previously combined. So they're repatriating their gold from the Bank of England and the New York Fed. They're copiously accumulating it buying more so than in the previous 60 years combined. And then the next year, 2019, they doubled that, up 100%. Within a few months of those purchases, the Bank of International Settlements, this is peg number one. This is tier number one, the first biggest event of my career, the first signpost in where I'm going, and that is the BIS, which is the Central Bank or Central Bank, reclassified gold as the world's only other tier one reserve asset. Now, this is a big, big deal. Media never talked squad about it, but you can go back and look from March of 2019. Uh, you'll see that the BIS reclassifies gold on March 31st, 2019, to the world's only other tier one reserve asset. Now, most of the people in my industry thought it would be a special drawing rights from the International Monetary Fund, which is nearly 200 countries that would contribute to make a new currency to, to shore up the, the ills of the world reserve currency. But that never happened. Instead, they levy gold to a tier one reserve asset, which is equal to cash. The U.S. dollar and the U.S. Treasury have been the only tier one reserve assets by central bank standards since the end of World War II. And out of nowhere, after almost 80 years, oh, by the way, let's add gold. All right, so gold is the world's only other tier one asset. The next year, 2020, we see lots of things happening, right? We see the BIS, or excuse me, the IMF, 100, 195 countries from around the world, publicly declare they want a new Bretton they want a new system. They're sick and tired of the system based upon debt. And that was on their website. We see lots of other things happening. But signpost number two uh, in this road to de-dollarization is the Belt Road Initiative. Most people in this country have never heard of it. And that is maybe 
I don't know, it's a crime that they haven't heard of it. And, and it's something that I think will have a profound effect on all of our lives in the years ahead. This is China's attempt at connecting Asia, Africa, and part of Europe, the old Silk Road route. This is the largest infrastructure project in human history ever attempted. It's connecting 75% of human population. It's 45% of global GDP before industrialization. It's connecting these countries by bridges and roads and railways and maritime channels digitally as well when we think about the need for silver 75 percent of human population will need to be connected digitally this is huge for silver but it's bigger for the de-dollarization when you realize it's 75 percent of human population and it's all settling on the new chinese digital yuan i'm going to get to the significance of this in a moment now these roads and these bridges and these maritime channels they will not be patrolled by anything other than military and commerce this is the Panama Canal on steroids, and the United States is uh, very conspicuously not part of it. And uh, this is a very big deal, right? And, and I think this is signpost number two in de-dollarization. Signpost number three that no one seems to know about may be the biggest event in all of our lives, and yet our media does such a horseshit job of telling us what's really important, Chris, you're the only one who talks about this stuff, and I give you credit for it, and that's why I sent you that email. And that is the, the linchpin of the dollar hegemony is the protection of the Saudi kingdom. The day we left Saudi Arabia, or excuse me, uh, Afghanistan with our tails between our legs, leaving in what I believed was the most embarrassing moment north of Nancy Pelosi tearing up Trump's uh, State of the Union, that is leaving Americans behind enemy lines. The country that I grew up in would never have ever thought that was possible. And you leave Americans behind enemy lines in a very hostile environment, leave our allies who, who fought for us, died for us, behind right. those same enemy lines, right. was deplorable, horrible. The day that happened, there's no coincidence. You go back and you Google August 24th, 2021, you will see a report on Google that Saudi Arabia signs a military cooperation agreement with russia now let me say that one more time slowly saudis sign military cooperation agreement with russia what makes the dollar the world reserve currency the protection of the saudi kingdom oh russia's now protecting the saudi kingdom as well and guess what happened the day after that nigeria and russia signed military agreement this is another massive opec producing country so now you have russia protecting not only saudi arabia but another massive cog in the OPEC machinery. The day after that, Russia comes out in an article on Zero Hedge, who I know you're close with, they publish everything that you do, and uh, you can find it on Zero Hedge, an article that says, uh, Russia announces all nuclear powered submarines contain hypersonic ICBM missiles. This is uh, Putin's way of saying, don't fuck with us, don't even think of fucking with us the way you did Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi both of which who threatened to sell their oil for anything other than U.S. dollars. Things are getting really, really, really crazy, as you note, right? So, you know, uh, you are seeing not only a drive of global um, uh, trade routes and, and infrastructure being built superseding the dollar at this point, you're seeing gold reclassified on par with the dollar as the world's only other tier one asset. And now you're beginning to see the petro status start to wane. Well, it gets worse than that. If we look at number three biggest move, uh, biggest uh, road sign in all of this, it is the weaponizing of the U.S. dollar, kicking 
Russia out of SWIFT. Now, this is the, the question that I was asking you. Is this intended or is this not intended? Because you have to be an idiot to not understand what's about to happen. By doing so, by weaponizing the dollar as the world reserve currency, it is not our business to say who can and who can't use it. It's right. not our job. And all that does is undermine the credibility of the currency itself, right? This should be for global opinion, not for the U.S. Sure. So in any case, we kick Russia out of SWIFT directly into the open arms of the Chinese who have the SIPS system, the cross interbank payment system, which mirrors the SWIFT directly into the, the coalition of the BRICS nations, right? So you're talking about Russia and China now at this point are doing trades in, in, uh, in energy for not only the Chinese digital yuan, or excuse me, the uh, Chinese petro yuan bond, uh, which is immediately convertible into gold on the Shanghai Gold Exchange, by the way, where Russia sells oil, Iran sells oil, Nigeria sells oil. They have agreed to sell their oil to China for the for the uh, petro-yuan bond. As Saudi Arabia said, they're negotiating it. When they say that publicly, they're doing it. All of these countries are selling their oil to China for a yuan-denominated bond that is immediately convertible into gold on the Shanghai Gold Exchange. This is how they all sidestep sanctions. Anyways, it's getting more and more. It's starting to speed up. You see the India-Iran North-South Corridor, which is it, it, it's safe passage from India all the way to Russia past Iran. Uh, these are uh, very uh, exclusive trade routes. Everyone else has to go around the Strait of Hormuz. You see India come out. We're their largest trading partner. India says we're going to do um, domestic trades in rupee now for imports and exports, not in dollars. You see the BRICS nations come out and say Saudi Arabia and Turkey to join BRICS soon. What did they just say? Saudi Arabia is going to join the BRICS nations. That's in an article published July 14th. This is what you were talking about. Everyone says, what the hell? What are you talking about? The dollar hegemony is right about ready to break when you realize Saudi Arabia is moving into the BRICS nations, Egypt and Turkey as well. Do you really think that our president, who can't even hardly tie his shoes and say, say three words cohesive at once, is going to fly to Saudi Arabia when he hasn't even been to the Mexico-Texas uh, border to ask for more oil when we're trying to destabilize and ruin their way of life going completely green? Of course not. He went there to beg them not to join BRICS, but I would argue when they say BRICS expects them to join it soon, it's already done. What makes the dollar the world reserve currency? The protection of the Saudi kingdom, who is now going to join the BRICS nation. And what did we see a day or two later, a 10 days later, July 14th, Russia and China are brewing up a challenge to dollar dominance by creating the world reserve currency. They not they came out and publicly said, we are issuing a new BRICS reserve currency yep and is saudi arabia part of that yet how about turkey looks to ditch dollar and payment for russian energy an article on july 20th um when when you put all of this together you see a trend that trend when you put all of these countries together brazil brazil russia china india south africa iran just joined venezuela just joined turkey's going to join saudi arabia is going to join all of the eastern european countries that i told you about that repatriated their gold most of them czech republic hungary Poland, uh, Turkey, these countries, they're all part of the European Union, but they all trade their own currency. They don't use the euro. They're all copiously continuing to accumulate gold. They're all going to break away from the Western system. So let me tell you how it all happens. How do you get the Great Reset? How does all of this happen? I'll tell you exactly how. You blow assets up 
after you get COVID, you blow assets or you blow prices up to all-time highs by injecting more money in the country in three years than it has printed in its entire history prior. You keep interest rates low where you incentivize big funds to borrow money at next to nothing and put it into assets, stocks, bonds, real estate, everything. Blow them up to all-time highs. They can pay off those loans without even blinking an eye. Make huge bonuses from their commercial banks. Drive the prices of everything sky high. And then what? You incentivize Russia into um, finding a backdoor by weaponizing the dollar. And everyone else, look at China. They've sold $100 billion of our, our bonds in the last six months, and their eyes are on Taiwan. You think they'll ever buy our bonds again if they're thinking, are we next? Are they going to freeze our assets? Are they, are they going to sanction us? No, they're not. And so here's how it happens. All it takes, all it really takes, and I'd like your comment on this, is for Saudi Arabia, who's now being protected by Russia, Nigeria, who's now being protected by Russia, is part of the Belt Road Initiative, so also being protected by China. The, the Russia-China relationship never has been stronger. The BRICS coalition has never been stronger now Saudi Arabia joins BRICS and says, thanks for the memories, guys. Yep. It's, been, it's been great, but we're now going to issue oil globally in rupee, in ruble, in gold, in euro, okay, and in dollars, too. And if you remember that every country on the planet Earth has had to own dollars to buy oil for the last 50 years, when this admission happens, and I believe it will happen on a Sunday night here in the United States, Monday morning, all of the leaders of the BRICS nations will be arm-in-arm arm, with their arms around each other saying, we have now issued a new world reserve currency, which they already did. You got the success of the Chinese digital yuan, a yuan who's done 20, almost 20 billion in sales successfully starting in the Winter Olympics for the past few years on the Belt Road. And I think they will all use the success of this new distributed ledger technology and issue a new BRICS currency. It'll be a digital currency. The question is, do they peg gold to it? Because remember, gold has been reclassified a tier one asset. Why did they do gold? Why not the special drawing rights? Why gold? Who are the biggest producing countries in the world of gold? The RICs in BRICS, Russia, China, India, and oh, South Africa as well. Russia, China, India, South Africa, you throw Brazil in there. Now you've got all of these other countries that are joining, Venezuela and, and, uh, and, and Iran and Saudi Arabia. And all of these countries are accumulating gold. Are they going to peg it to gold, to a new world reserve currency denominated in uh, or excuse me, uh, backed on the new success of the Chinese digital yuan, are they going to do that? Or is that going to come after Saudi Arabia says we're going to issue all of these, these you know, we're going to sell oil in all these currencies? But what happens? Here's what happens. Every currency on the planet starts to dump dollars. Every country on the planet starts to dump dollars. Why do they dump dollars? Because they don't need to buy oil with it anymore. They've had to hold it as the foundation of their currency forever to buy oil. Now they don't have to, and they can use other currencies. So as they start to dump dollars, the dollar becomes a hot potato. By Monday morning, you have a flood of dollars as every country is racing, just like in, uh, in trading places. Sell, Mortimer, sell. They're going to be telling them, sell, sell, sell. Everyone's dumping dollars. The dollar comes home and it's collapsed, right? There's pillar number one, the dollar crashes. When the dollars come home, it creates massive hyperinflation, much worse than what the Fed has any intention of fighting, right? So Hyperinflation, what happens to interest rates? Does the dirty work directly for the Fed? Interest rates spike to the moon. What happens to stocks, bonds, and real estate? They vaporize in a matter of minutes. So when you talk about the Great Reset and you see the moving away from the dollar, 
when you see that what is basically happening is almost 90% of human population, when you factor in the Belt Road Initiative is 75%, and that's just China and Africa, you throw in the rest of the, the countries that are part of this, um, you're talking the majority of the human population on this planet is moving away from the dollar, learning settlement on a new digital yuan that could very well become a digital BRICS currency, that could very well be pegged on a distributed ledger, won't be convertible, because De Gaulle from France proved that convertible currencies convert, but will be pegged using distributed ledger technology by the largest importers, producers, and owners of gold in the world, and they will peg gold to a new distributed ledger technology and watch what happens to the dollar in a matter of moments. It's your great reset. Where all four pillars of wealth in this country simultaneously collapse, stocks, bonds, real estate, and the dollar. Now, I would like to ask you, am I off base? Am I smoking something? Or does this sound like something that is not only plausible, but maybe even it's happening? Just to throw a few more logs on this fire, I think that if China takes Taiwan, if they perceive the U.S. is weak, or maybe they've made a deal with us, or whatever the situation is, um, if they take Taiwan, the microchip situation is going to go from bad to worse. Not just that. I mean, whether or not it's destroyed in the, in the attack, I think it would behoove Taiwan to probably cripple the uh, the uh, their main semiconductor factory if China did attack. But beyond that, I think that it would, depending on how the U.S. would see it, it would cut off relationships with uh, China already. So our supply chain issue would go through the roof. In the, and of course, that would exacerbate all the economic problems. To the point of some of the other things I've said in previous podcasts, if you, what does that look like on the ground? Well, it looks like hungry people and it looks like mad people and mad people do bad things. And once bad things start to happen, they have a way of sort of just uh, feeding on themselves. And I don't know how long a state like that could last, but I think it will last long enough for people to be totally willing for whatever is proposed that gives them some sort of order. And that's where I think all the sort of prep for the feeling, the, the communist or socialist sort of uh, feeling of the youth and how they're going to be all on board. And I, I think that even, you know, people that normally would be rational today, your average sort of Fox News viewer, give them a few months of, of that if they survive. And they're going to be all on board with whatever it is that's going to give them their uh, communist uh, uh, rations and, and they'll join whatever it is. And I guess that that does have a little bit to do with Bible prophecy and that I, I think that that's where, you know, the 10 kings that the Bible says will be ruling on the earth uh, before the Antichrist shows up and the Antichrist will eventually uh, take them over and use that same bureaucratic system, uh, except it will be a, a theocracy eventually. But 10 kings, I don't see too, being too far from it. And I, I think that if we actually go through a real war, you know, where people throw nuclear weapons around or whatever. I don't know what the world looks like, but but it doesn't look the same as it does now. And um, everybody talks about a world government's coming or whatever. Well, what does that look like? What, what kind of stuff has to happen to get there? And I'm telling you, a lot of geopolitical stuff has to happen, a lot, and, and in order for, as I say sometimes, Germans to give up being Germans and French people to give up being French. You got to do something big to get there. And so I think that the stage is set for a lot of this stuff. But I also think it could, you know, I think that we're on the 
edge of a lot of other things too. I think that the the vaccine injury stuff is you know very it, it, it give us another year of this information that keeps coming out. I should probably do an update on that of all the stuff that has been admitted to and coming out in the last uh, you know few months and how. That, I mean, it's lagging, you know, America is probably going to be the last ones to know because our media is actually funded by pharma, but people in others, other countries whose media isn't directly funded by pharma, they're, they're knowing the terribleness on their mainstream news now of what's happening here. So that I think is going to cause a major distrust in the institutions. The so-called fourth turning is characterized by people no longer trusting their uh, institutions and that is beneficial to a world government who offers new institutions, but I don't think they have to sell them that hard because all they really have to do is give us food. Anyway, so what do you do about it? Uh, what can be done about it? And do it does it really have anything to do with the end times? I would say, I mean, the jury is still out. I mean, it could, it, whatever's coming next, it could be the Tin King system or something that could turn into the Tin King system. It's not here yet. And as you know, my position is that is the first thing that we could ever even know uh, was on the horizon is the formation of that system since, the, since that must come before the Antichrist, according to Daniel 7. What to do about it? My position is to get out of anything that is anywhere close to a risk asset. I could do a whole podcast of the coming housing collapse. If you are at all thinking about buying a house, first of all, I'm not a financial advisor. I am just going to tell you what I am doing and, and what I would do. Please don't take this as financial advice. But if you're at all thinking about buying a house right now, wait, wait. I mean, this market is rapidly crashing. It's crashing from west to east, and it is that wave is coming, and it is a big wave. And I don't know where it ends, but I also think it could be worse than even these doomsdayers are saying, because I don't think that there's enough people to fill all the houses that we built during this boom. The financial markets, the equities, the, the stock market, it's going to, I mean, it's been overvalued for a while because that's where inflation mostly showed up at first. So those stock prices are massively overvalued. And there is going to be, right now we're in a, a bear market sort of uh, um, boom. Like we're, you know, we're still going down, but it's going to go up a little bit before it goes down. I mean, I think now is the time to liquidate as much as you can. I, I, th I think that in the short term, holding cash is not a bad idea because uh, in the short term, before we go into any kind of real situation, the dollar is kind of a good thing to hold. There's, just some, there's something out there called the dollar milkshake theory. And while I don't agree with his ultimate optimism uh, for long term, I think that short term he is spot on, meaning that before we go to any other kind of new financial system, the dollar is going to be in high demand and the dollar, as it relates to other currencies like the euro or the peso or whatever, is just going to be on this rocket ship. It that doesn't mean that the dollar locally for goods and services isn't going to be, you know, uh, falling in value. But compared to everything else, it's kind of like gold right now. Look at gold uh, priced in the euro versus priced in the dollar, and all that means, I think, that gold is really cheap right now. It's a good buying opportunity for gold. I don't think gold. Gold could be a great investment uh, if any of this stuff, like the BRICS nation stuff happens or whatever. It could shoot through the moon. It could become like a Bitcoin situation where, you know, when once people started realizing what was happening, they would buy into it and go crazy. Or if the paper gold market fell through, which has been manipulated for years and years and years. Um, other things, I think that productive land, you know, if you could buy land 
that is close by or close to your church or something like that, that could be farmed or whatever, um, or has other something else about it that is productive or people could live there or whatever, that kind of stuff. So productive land is another place to put stuff. Um, but I would just say the main thing to not be in right now is number one, don't buy a house. If you can't, if you are in a house and you're likely to, if you have a kind of job that is vulnerable to economic recession and depression, like what industry are you in? And does that industry industry survive economic recession or depression? That means that you'll probably be laid off. And if you don't have that cash flow coming in on, on the monthly basis, then you can't pay your mortgage, and if, which is really, really high, which means they're going to take the house, which means the Federal Reserve, once again, takes everybody's stuff. And that cycle continues of them getting richer and richer and richer off of your massive down payments um, and equity. Mostly, I wanted to say, I think if you have been wondering about some of these things, kind of now is the time to, to do some stuff about it. And I wanted, I felt like I should just go ahead and say that. But listen, this is the most important thing about this. I've been very, very wrong about all this stuff. I think that you, anybody that believes in sound money, uh, the, the saying goes, they've called uh, nine of the last two recessions because they, they always say, well, we can't continue like this. Surely it must be a recession. It's happening today and buy gold and everything. And they're, they've been wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong. And I think they underestimated the power of this uh, printing money game and how much it could last. But eventually, eventually somebody will call them out on it. And I think we're at that point where like, it's now getting down to the, uh, we can't pretend anymore. And when the Fed, and this is, I think this is when you'll know for sure, because the Fed going forward, this is what they're going to do. They are going to talk tough. Oh, we're going to fight that inflation. We're going to do something. And they're going to make these little teensy weensy quarter, half of a quarter point increases. And then if they ever see anything happen, if they, a war breaks out or whatever, they'll be like, oh, well, we got to go back to uh, printing money and we got to cut interest rates again. That's what they want to do. Politically, it's what they want to do because they know that they can't actually raise rates because it would crash the, the economy to fix this inflation. And the, the thing that can't happen, they can't let the cat out of the bag that they have no ability or will to fight this inflation. Because if they do, then the whole market loses faith in the one thing that this whole house of cards is built on, the modern monetary system and the Fed having the authority and power and ability to fight inflation, which it doesn't in this hyper leveraged super debt market. We have gone too far in, down that road and it is now coming to an end. That is my opinion. Please, I am almost certainly wrong about all of this, but just thought I would mention it. Before you leave, I wanted to remind you to check out that Billy Graham video. It's uh, posted on this podcast. You can also see it on the first link on your podcatcher or go to YouTube and type in Media Missionaries or Billy Graham. But most importantly, send me a, a, a sermon. If you know of one that's just the greatest sermon ever and you really, really love it, send it to me, chriswhite79 at protonmail.com. See you next time.